You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed History, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath it. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is House of the Dragon. The prequel to Game of Thrones. Alright, it's almost game time. Get it? Game of Thrones, game time. Which means we're going to be talking... A lot, I'm pleased to say, about women in history, because actually that's the main plot. What I'm going to say is, in this episode, don't worry, I'm recording this after seeing one episode of House of the Dragon, and I've read a little bit up on it by people who've seen a few more episodes, so I can't, even if I wanted to, give you lots of spoilers. That's not what this is here for, but there will be a lot of spoilers around Game of Thrones, but come on, you've had three years to see it. This is what we're going to be talking about, and women in history is a really important conversation, so I'm not being glib about that. But let's get into what's going on, and, and weirdly, I'm going to start in 1998, and nothing to do with George R. R. Martin, but instead, Hollywood. Hollywood, every now and then, has what can only be described as a deep impact moment. What do I mean by that? Well, in the year 1998, you had Deep Impact, a story about an asteroid coming to Earth and threatening to destroy the whole of the planet. A few minutes ago, the United States ambassadors to every country in the world told the leaders of those nations what I'm about to tell you. The comets are still headed for Earth. And in the same year, you had Armageddon, the story of an asteroid that was coming towards Earth and threatening to destroy the whole planet. Now, they weren't written by the same person or produced by the same production company. But what was happening is just, it was just fluke. Clearly, there'd been a conversation going, oh, that'd be a good one. Oh, yeah, no, with special effects and things like that, new computer-generated graphics, we'll be able to create really cool scenes of destruction and devastation, and that'll be fun. And you've probably heard of Armageddon, but you probably haven't heard of Deep Impact. Armageddon is a Michael Bay film, and it's full of bayhem. It's one of these ones which is just on the edge of being just too loud to be watchable. Think all the Transformer movies after the first one. We've kept much from you, Sam. This isn't my war. So it's not that. It's a fun, stupid watch. I have heard that NASA requires astronauts to watch this movie 
to see how many things they got wrong. And as I understand it, the number is currently over 120 different factual or story-related things that just are impossible and aren't scientific. So that's Armageddon. Deep Impact was a much more thoughtful movie. I have actually seen both. And they just take the whole thing in a different way. They take it more seriously without the Bayhem. But it's happened before. Dante's Peak and Volcano, both about volcanic eruptions, came out the same year. And there are other examples too. So it's not uncommon for this thing. Well, it's not common. It doesn't happen every year. But it's just weird how every now and then it's like, well, got to wait for a long time for a volcano movie. And oh, wow, two of them turn up on the same year. Why is Jem saying all of this when he said this is all about House of the Dragon? Because fantasy prequelitis is hitting Hollywood, kind of. Again, in the space of a month, we are getting two long-awaited fantasy prequel series coming out on TV, both hugely expensive. There is House of the Dragon, which is a prequel to the incredibly popular Game of Thrones franchise on TV and books, and the Lord of the Rings prequel set in the Second Age. One thing we can do, better than any creature in all Middle-earth, we stay true to each other. Which, I'm not going to go into anymore, the Rings of Power is what it's called, and I'm not going to go into that anymore, just to say that it's coming up only a few weeks later, and there will be a few weeks, about a month, of overlap between these two fantasy series. I'm going to do a whole other one on Rings of Power because I have to, really. So that's it on that one. But let's go back to Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon. I remember in 2010 watching TV and seeing this really strange trailer for all these people like Sean Bean and some people I recognize and some I've never seen before, all sitting on this throne covered it seems to be covered in swords or something, and is like Game of Thrones. You win or you die. When you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. And it was like, that looks really good. But I was also aware that every time you'd seen any attempt at either fantasy or medieval on TV, budget gets in the way. And so I wanted to watch it, but I was cautious about it. And I, like everybody else, was hooked from the first series. The thing is, they weren't quite sure whether it was going to land properly. So the first series came out, and there is a bit where, for example, Tyrion is at the start of a battle, so he's standing there, surrounded by these soldiers. There's clearly a row of guys. Let's strip away what it's meant to be. What it is, is presumably an island somewhere. There's about... 40 guys and they've got a row of 20 and then behind them another row of 20 so it looks like this thing might be bulked out a bit and there's Tyrion right in the front and they're about to charge into battle and it's all sort of very a close tight shot on Tyrion and these guys the implication being the army stretches out beyond the screen and then Tyrion gets knocked over and knocked out and he wakes up and he finds out what happened with the battle how did our tribesmen do yeah. Good. And there are a number of occasions where in the first series there are conversations about battle. Oh, he's won another battle, or it's like, oh, he's heading from the west, or whatever it may be. 
And it's all sort of shown on maps. It's like, oh, his army is marching down this valley without actually having to show an army. It's just a little piece on a board kind of thing. And yeah, budget got in the way. So in the second season, I will remember like everybody else that things were getting bigger and bigger. And it's like, wow, they're really spending some money on this. And it's like this fight around King's Landing. It's like, it's really impressive. And it just grew from there to the point where by the final series, each episode was costing more than $10 million. So that's a lot of money. And I believe prior to the Rings of Power, Game of Thrones is the most expensive TV show ever. And to be fair, it shows it. So when you had things like the Battle of Winterfell in the final season of Game of Thrones, as I'm invariably going to say at some other points, not in this podcast, but perhaps in the Rings of Power one, it's like it came out basically the same time as Avengers Endgame. Now, if this was 2001, let's say, and there was a big epic scene on it. Actually, let's go to 2000 and, and Gladiator, shall we? So we got Gladiator, and this is an amazing battle sequence at the beginning of that. There was simply no way anything on TV could match that. Whereas the Battle of Winterfell, I'm not saying it was necessarily as good as Avengers Endgame's climactic fight, but we're talking about one of the biggest grossing movies in history versus a TV show. And they both had really big, spectacular battles with clearly hundreds of extras and obviously thousands of CGI characters as well. And it's like, my goodness, this is how far this series has come. There is the controversy of, how can I put this while keeping my clean rating? There was a lot of adult time between men and women and suddenly sometimes men and men and sometimes women and women. And they would have conversations in the middle of adult time, also talking about the plot. And this was referred to as sex position. Oh, okay. I see what you did there. Because they were just having to dump a load of information that helps bring the story along or lets you know what's going on with the politics. And that's a bit boring, so why don't we give you something more interesting to look at at that time. And I say no more than that. Say no more, say no more now. I mean, nudge, nudge. A nod's as good as a wink to a blind bat. But the reason for that, particularly in seasons one and two, was they just didn't have the budget. And interestingly, that stuff was still there by the final season, but it was really watered down. I heard that there was a couple of actresses in season two of Game of Thrones that simply stopped doing it or putting complaints saying enough of the nudity okay i think we've had enough and that's a horrible sort of situation to be in and what's interesting then is going back again to the whole armageddon deep impact hbo were making this knowing that rings of power was coming out and knowing how much money amazon had thrown in it so the question mark i had and i can't have been the only person there is are they going to tone down all the violent and adult time. You know, there's some incredibly graphic, sort of eye-watering moments of violence and gore in Game of Thrones. Please, I'm not complaining. That visceral response of horror was a sign that, wow, I'm really invested in this show. But are they going to tone that down so that if people who really like Rings of Power, are they going to come over to House of the Dragon? And no, it's not. <laughs> Absolutely not. This is business as usual of blood, guts, and nudity. Not everywhere, that's an exaggeration, but this is clearly aimed at a different audience. Now, what I therefore say is that I was wondering, how different is this going to be from Game of Thrones? And this is the challenge 
everybody has. If you make it exactly the same, or make it very similar, you get some people saying, oh, that was fun, but I've seen it all before. Think of the seventh Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens. It was almost a soft reboot. It was another Death Star. You can call it whatever you want, but it was another Death Star being blown up and another trench run. It's another Death Star. I wish that were the case, Major. This was the Death Star. And this is Starkiller Base. So it's big. It was the same as A New Hope about 30 years earlier. So if you make it too similar, people will enjoy it, but people do actually want things different. But let's keep it with Star Wars for a moment. You've then got Star Wars Episode Eight, The Rise of Skywalker, and is it Rise of Skywalker or The Last Jedi? I think it's The Last Jedi. I mean, that's how sort of bland we get towards the end of the Star Wars trilogy of trilogies that I can't even quite remember. The second one, okay? They did do something different in that one, but it was so different, it actually annoyed some of the fans, particularly how Luke behaved in that second movie. And so using that as an analogy, it's like, that's the worry. You've got this baked in audience. It is worth remembering that Game of Thrones was a genuine phenomenon. It could have been the last water cooler moment of TV. I remember commuting into work certain days and in the UK, you could see it at like four o'clock in the morning on a Monday, but hey, I had work. And so they repeated it on Monday evening. And so the newspapers, things like the Metro, would actually have bits of it in the newspaper. There was like moments where I was like, I don't want to know what happens. Don't want to, don't, don't, you know, I don't want to accidentally look over someone's shoulder and find out about the Red Wedding, for example, or something like that. Are you up to date on Game of Thrones? Hmm, I think so. Dragons, snow zombies, and all the hot guys are dead. It was that newsworthy. People were hooked. There's a whole generation of young girls that are growing up with the name Daenerys. And I will come to the spoiler about Daenerys in a little bit. So yeah, it was a huge deal. But now with the rise of Netflix, and as I mentioned, HBO, but terrestrial TV as well, Disney+, Plus, Amazon, as I just said, Apple, kind of done stuff about all these different ways to consume TV. It means it's very hard. When I was a kid, everybody watched basically the same thing. Whereas nowadays, like, oh, have you seen Severance? That's a really good series. Uh, no, I don't have Apple. It's like, oh, have you, have you seen The Witcher on Net? No, I haven't, I haven't seen that. So it's the thing where there's so much good stuff out there, but you're not guaranteed to have seen all of it, or it's going to cost you a fortune to see all of it. But Game of Thrones and HBO was so well established, or HBO was so well established, Pretty much everybody seemed to be watching Game of Thrones. I'm sure some people were streaming it illegally or whatever. I do not condone such activity. So Game of Thrones started in 2011, which was a very different time. Netflix did not have the dominance. It was a decade before Disney Plus was even going to appear or be a thing. Amazon Prime wasn't yet... Well, there was an Amazon, but it wasn't yet also a TV channel, too. So... It was a different time, and yet by the time the final season in 2019 came out, it shows you how much the TV world had changed. And whereas these little girls had been named Daenerys, there was an outcry. The Daenerys sort of turned evil towards the end of season eight of Game of Thrones. I'm going to defend the final season. I'm going to say a few things. If you disagree with me, that's fine. Okay, I get it. But I would argue certain things need to be taken into context. For those people who say Battle of Winterfell was, was truly epic, and it was, but that ended the White Walkers. 
you know, all this build-up and, and what, they just get stopped there? It's like, well, there was quite a lot of effort to get there, and, it, you know, lots of people died, but also they hadn't done much with them. I remember at the end of one season, you see them marching together as an army, and there's a sort of close-up of one of them on the back of a horse, and it's like, wow, that's going to be amazing next season. Hardly mention the next season. They were never really an integral part of the actual show. The thing I loved, and I think a lot of people loved about Game of Thrones, is it was basically a historical drama, only we didn't know the history. The problem with something like a TV series about Henry VIII is even the passing of knowledge about Henry VIII is he had six wives. So when he's with wife number one, you know it ain't gonna last. And the thing about drama is it has to be exceptional drama if you know what's gonna happen next. Because the point about drama is like, how are they gonna get out of this? What's gonna happen next? And the problem with history is we know what happens next. It's been written down for quite a long time. Whereas with Game of Thrones, there were two groups, the people who'd read the books and the people who hadn't. I was one of the people who hadn't. And I knew a few people who said, don't know how they're gonna turn this into a TV series. Some of it's completely unfilmable. And I'm not going to go into the grim stuff, but George R. R. Martin seemed to be taking into account the real history of Europe in the Middle Ages. He was being accurate, but it's a bit creepy doing marrying off sort of 12-year-olds in a modern book, and you're expecting that to be in a TV show. So no, they, they aged up a number of the women, for example. But I go no further than that. But in this element, if you like, is... Then we get to season five, which basically catches up to the books. I think it's season five. And then everybody's in the dark. And people were thrilled by season six and season seven. But when we come to season eight, all good things must come to an end. And so when Daenerys started going nuts, it had been hinted at before. And why am I talking about Game of Thrones when I'm not talking about House of Dragons? Because House of Dragons, like Rings of Power, is a prequel. So tell you a bit more, a little bit more about it in a moment before we get into the good history stuff. So Daenerys was a principal character. There were a number, I, you know, I mentioned Tyrion, for example, we got Jon Snow, etc. There were loads of characters. And the great thing about Game of Thrones is when people died, by and large, they stayed dead. And it, because there were so many characters, it's like there were, there were moments where you could actually see two people that you've really rooted for, but now they're meeting each other and they're fundamentally opposed and they're going to start swinging swords at each other. And it's like, I don't want either of you to die. You're both deeply misunderstood people. Like when Brienne of Tarth fights the Hound, you know, that was a great moment of like, no, 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 please, please, both of you live. When Ned Stark has his head cut off, he's Sean Bean. He's the biggest name in the... In the series, it's sort of like, oh, he's been imprisoned. I'm sure he'll get out of this. Oh, he's been walked up to the block. Oh, I'm sure somebody will save him. Oh, he's just had his head cut off. Ouch. And so, yeah, there's genuine threat there. The problem with something like Breaking Bad, for example, is when somebody, you know, there's five seasons. When somebody sticks a gun in Walter's face in season three, it's tense. But, you know, fundamentally, he's got to be around for seasons four and five. Whatever dangers we may face, we'll never fear or cry. That's right, until we're syndicated, Fox will never let us die. So Game of Thrones sort of revolutionized TV. It, it, it made us excited about what was going to happen next. It's conversations and theories, and some of these theories turn out to be true, and some of them didn't. And when people said in the final episode, it's like, why did it go to Bran? You know, he's so boring. Uh, my response to that is, 
If they continued the story, you're right, but they weren't continuing the story. They were wrapping it up, and he wrapped up a number of different plot lines. And it's one of these things where it reached such fever pitch that no matter who became the king of the five lands, realms, whatever, says Jem, forgetting the whole, the whole terminology. I'm the king of the world! <laughs> anyway, you get the idea. At King's Landing, being the big kingy king, whoever they picked, it would have annoyed a bunch of people. Oh, Jon Snow would have never taken it. He was too loyal to the people of the North, or whatever. Daenerys, or, you know, no matter who you picked. So, recognise that. Writers cannot please everybody. And it worked. Did it work as well as your head cannon? Maybe not, but that's not their fault. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So with all that in mind, when it finished in 2019, there was a bit of a sour taste. People thinking, mm, was that the payoff we all wanted? And it all went a bit quiet. And then we also had a pandemic and things like that. But now it is back. And it's interesting that it's beginning to pick up the same head of steam as Game of Thrones. So House of the Dragon is trending on Twitter and things like that. So people are willing to give it a go. And it's already very similar. And what it's fundamentally about is the fact that you've got Paddy Constantine, who's King Viserys of the Targaryens. The reason why it's House of Dragon is it's all about the Targaryens, and 200 years ago, they were the bosses, and they had the dragons, and they were in charge. I placed my heir upon the Iron Throne, and all the dragons roared as one. 
but it now looks like he's going to have to give his crown to <gasps> his daughter, played by Emma Darcy. That's Riaria. I'm going to have to get used to these names. Whole new series of names. And in the background, there's the evil uncle, played by Matt Smith, whose name's Damon, which is literally demon. So we know he's not a good guy. And, and so it's the tensions that no woman has ever had the Iron Throne before. And it's that classic patriarchal problem, which brings me so neatly into the history. You see, throughout history, women have had the short straw every time. I've heard people argue about what's worse, being an African-American in America and looking at the absolute tragedy and crime of both things like slavery and also segregation, or being a woman. And why are we comparing tragedy here? Because the reality is that even in the African-American community, women get the short end of the stick. For some reason, it took us until the 20th century to stop thinking of women as the property of their husbands, for heaven's sakes. And when people talk about, you know, there's been moments of like fairness and egalitarianism in various cultures, for example, it's very easy to divorce a man in Islam when you're a woman, and it's easy for things like women could own property in the Viking era if you're Scandinavian. Yeah, all these things are true, but they're the exceptions to the rule. Women basically just get it tough every time. And it's, it's awful. And therefore, finding women who finally got to the top of the heap, every time there was protests. And we can go back thousands of years, to, for example, to ancient Egypt with someone like Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut was the first female pharaoh. Now, pharaoh is not king. It's not translated. It actually translates as the great house. It's almost like the ruler is, is sort of semi-divine and we can't even speak their name even, but we can talk about the building that they live in. That shows you how important and potent they were. But the idea of the pharaoh was male. Now, Hatshepsut, I'm not going to go into the complexities of all of this because we've only got so much time and I want to introduce a lot of women in this story so you can get an idea that there's a lot of amazing women out there. And what she did was go on a very clever PR campaign. What she did was go into the temples and find some of the monuments of some of the early pharaohs and feminize them. So in other words, she said, I'm not the first female pharaoh. Look at this person over here. Definitely a lady. And therefore, I can definitely be pharaoh. Very, very clever. Also, you've seen the images of the pharaohs with that long spindly beard sticking out their chin. Well, it probably doesn't surprise you. That's not a real beard. It's a strap-on beard, basically, a fake beard. And so a woman can wear a fake beard just as easily as a man can. So she had the male attire. Same thing with Cleopatra VII, the famous Cleopatra. Princess Cleopatra, sir, daughter of the two rams, mistress of Sedge and Bee. So there were these women who, even though they did wield supreme power, had to still fight for it and watch it. And there was always people sniping from the background. With Hatshepsut, she underwent massive building campaigns in terms of architecture and creating amazing archaeological temples and, and things like that. And so they did try to strike her name off a lot of this stuff. And there's a number of places where we can clearly see where it's been scarred. We can't tell which pharaoh, but it's probably her because it's from that era. 
but she built so much her name remains there were areas that they just simply missed and also it might have been a bit half-hearted as well it's like go in that there and damage that sacred temple why do i want to damage the sacred temple again it's got a name of a woman on it okay what happens if i anger the gods if i scratch it out so you know it does i don't know that for a fact but it does seem likely that some people just didn't follow orders as well so hatchets are you know we're talking sort of three and a half thousand years ago give or take it's an amazing thing that we still got her name and she was still ruling cleopatra by comparison she's just over two thousand years ago another famous woman from the past is we've got you're going to think i'm going to say boudicca well okay let's quickly do boudicca shall we she started an uprising after once again she was given the short end of the stick because she was not a man that's part of it, but also the Romans just dealt terribly with the locals as well. I'm pretty sure that if Boudicca had been a man, they probably still would have stiffed her on the inheritance after Dad died. But she created this mass uprising at a time when the Roman legions weren't around, and she destroyed places like Colchester and London. She really didn't like London, but this is because they were Roman colonies at the time. But her uprising lasted about a year, and then... When finally the Roman legions managed to get into position and fight her, she outnumbered them. The Romans probably had about 5,000 troops against probably about 80,000 Iceni and other Celtic warriors. And they got annihilated. And I'm sorry, but we all know why the Romans won, because they're a disciplined army that have been trained versus a rabble. Passionate rabble, but a rabble nonetheless. But if you outnumber the enemy that much, you shouldn't lose the battle, even if they are better trained. So, I'm sorry, Boudicca is a bit of a damp squib. However, Zenobia, a couple of centuries later, she did everything that Boudicca did, only bigger and better. She fought off multiple Roman armies. She managed to capture briefly a large chunk of the eastern Mediterranean area. And... In the end, she did lose to the Romans, but it took years, about a decade, and so she was a proper ruler for that amount of time in the ancient world. Zenobia is basically the modern-day Syrian version of Boudicca, only better in every possible way. We don't exactly know what happens to her. She, she obviously was defeated. She seems to have fled from the, the area she knew what the Romans were going to do. Some people say that she fled away and married a prince somewhere else, and other people say that she was brought back to Rome in chains, but then married into the aristocrats of Rome, and her children were to grow up to do great things. I mean, we don't know. All of this suddenly turns into legend at that point. But it doesn't seem that she had the same depressing ending of Boudicca having to take poison because the Romans were coming. So let's fast forward an another thousand odd years to King Henry I of England. Now, King Henry I of England, he had a male heir. Unfortunately, his son drowned in what was known as the White Ship Disaster. It's a reminder that crossing the channel between England and France isn't always a given, particularly with medieval technology. And so it was a tragedy. It was a terrible thing. And suddenly it meant he didn't have a male heir. But he did have a daughter called Matilda. So I am paraphrasing a little bit because nobody talked like this in the early 1100s. But he basically said, 
So the barons, as he was dying in 1135, because he ate too many lamprey eels, and they basically made him constipated, so his doctors gave him basically to loosen up his bowels, and basically he pooed himself to death. Great way to go for a king. Anyway, 1135, Henry's dying of excessive pooing, and he says to the barons, he goes, in essence, I know she's a woman, but she is my blood, and also, she's just had a son. Great name as well, Henry got good feeling about him so you don't have to wait too long for her to actually move aside and my grandson can become king so you're all definitely going to let her become queen of england right and the barons went yep fine and then as soon as he died they went well to hell with that we're going to get a nephew of henry a guy called stephen and so stephen becomes king of england yes england has had a king stephen and what happened was some of the aristocrats were actually loyal to Henry and back Matilda. And we then have a period of about 20 years of civil war in England, referred to as the Anarchy. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle was started by Alfred the Great, who may or may not have actually been all that great. I don't see what the big deal is, you know. He's not that great. One of the things he did do was try and do an official history of England. And this is all being completed at the end of the 800s. Each year you get a little entry about what happened in that year. It's how we find out about things like the Vikings and also things like the Battle of Hastings. But once the Normans come in, you could say, well, why didn't they stop the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle? But they kept going. But the last reign in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is actually the reign of King Stephen's, where they actually refer to it as an anarchy and say it was as if Jesus and the saints had left this land. That's how terrible and awful the violence was fighting over something where Matilda quite rightly said, I have a legitimate claim to the throne, but people were willing to fight a war rather than have a woman rule them. Now, in the end, neither side could kind of get that fatal final blow and win the day, but Stephen's son died. So there became an agreement going, all right, Stephen, you can just be king until you die, but when you die, you will be succeeded by Matilda's son, Henry, who in, that's exactly what happened, and Henry II, daddy of Richard the Lionheart and King John, so Henry II gets to be king. Now, Henry II ends up marrying Eleanor of Aquitaine, so she becomes Queen of England. Now, she's a formidable woman from history, and this is one of the things that I would love to know. We have no evidence of this, but clearly, as I've just pointed out, Henry II's mother fought a 20-year civil war for the right to be Queen of England. This was a woman who knew her place in the world and was a strong-willed woman. And Eleanor of Aquitaine had already been on crusade with her first husband, the King of France, who she got a legitimate divorce from. It was hard enough for women to get divorces in the Middle Ages, let alone divorced from an actual king. So that shows you how strong-willed Eleanor was, by the way, later on when Richard was in charge of England and he went off on crusade. Eleanor ran England. What a remarkable woman. But we know that Eleanor of Aquitaine would have met Matilda. These are two of the strongest-willed women in medieval history. And we don't know what they thought of each other. It could be that player respects player. You know, they both recognize that they were strong forceful women or maybe they hated each other's guts it's sort of like i fought a 20-year war for my son to rule i don't want you to sort of distract him lady who knows there's a great play or drama in there somewhere come on guys 
somebody write that one but it would be all speculation because we've got no idea but there's another example of women getting the short end of the stick let's stick with british history for a moment and go to the classic tudor era like i've already mentioned henry the eighth people forget that when henry died he did actually have a son edward but edward sadly was a rather sickly child and he died when he was 15 years old so he hadn't had a chance to get married and no offspring there so then okay yes very very briefly there's lady jane gray but let's not talk about that she was never crowned but we have this kind of era of women because we've then got queen mary referred to quite often as bloody queen mary she did undeniably kill protestants under her orders but if you look at what was going on in Europe, she wasn't particularly bloody. And when she died of stomach cancer, she was basically replaced by her half-sister, Queen Elizabeth I. I know, I know, I have the body but of a weak and feeble woman. But I have the heart and stomach of a king. who would go on to rule for quite a few years and obviously you got the spanish armada and things like that and she married herself to the country because she knew if she married a man she was going to likely lose her power then as well but we've got the friction between queen elizabeth the first of england and mary queen of scots in scotland where there is this tension there because it is worth pointing out to any scottish listeners that mary queen of scots was sort of raised in france scottish was not her first language or gaelic wasn't the first language french was and she'd already fought a civil war in scotland over whether she and her son james could become kings of scotland and she ended up fleeing to england because things had gone that badly in scotland she was not universally loved in scotland that's sort of a narrative afterwards because she then thinks oh well bye cousin queen elizabeth she'll definitely be fine for me but she's a threat to queen elizabeth who is already under all kinds of pressures so player respects player and locks them up and you know the rest they say is history if you don't know mary is executed but mary's only executed after substantial evidence because queen elizabeth does not want to start creating oh it's just you can just chop off the heads of queens whenever you want because it's pretty obvious that could happen to her so that's the kind of Game of Thrones happening around women in, in English history and, well, and British history as well. But then let's move on to one that you probably don't know about, the infamous War of Austrian Succession. Now, earlier in the 1700s, there's the War of Spanish Succession. And then in the middle of the 1700s, specifically 1740 to 1748, you get the War of Austrian Succession. What's all this about? Well, Charles VI is dying and he wants his daughter, Maria Theresa, to become the heir apparent. And this triggers a war. Basically, Austria sides with Britain and Prussia sides with France. And there's this just European conflagration. At least half a million people died in this battle and it leaked out into various empires as well. And all of this down to the fact that Look, this is an example where other things were happening. These were different countries trying to power play each other and the exchange of Silesia as well between Prussia and Austria and all that stuff. And in the end, after eight years of warfare, Maria Theresa gets 
to be the queen, even though she already was that at the start of the war, and half a million men are now dead because of it. But it just shows you every time there's like, well, this is the rightful heir to the throne, but oh my goodness, they have two X chromosomes rather than an XY chromosome. Oh no, they can't possibly rule anything. And it just shows you the inherent sexism of history. It's, it's terrible and appalling. So when you're watching stupid actions happening to Emma Darcy in House of the Dragon. Do you think that Ram will ever accept me as their queen? A woman would not inherit the Iron Throne. Because that is the order of things. It's probably been echoed in history for real at some point. I'll give you an example. They say with the original Game of Thrones that George R. R. Martin was influenced by the War of the Roses. That's not the world's best analogy because War of the Roses had only two sides. There are about six sides in Game of Thrones and there's just so many other differences. I'm not even talking about dragons here, but it's just I get that it might be the basis of it. But there are loads of civil wars dealing with aristocrats of different houses fighting throughout the whole of European history. I don't know why it's particularly that one, but it may be some of the stuff I've just been talking about appears in later series of House of the Dragon. And the fact that they are focusing in on this woman's right to what would be fine if she had two X chromosomes, then it, it's got to be tempting to be looking at history and how different women have dealt with certain situations. And what I would say about House of the Dragon is, well, if you liked the good bits of Game of Thrones, you will like House of the Dragon. It's obviously at very early stages yet, and it does need to have its own voice at some point. Maybe it'll slowly evolve as the writers get a bit more confident. And obviously they've got an eye to the fact that people were disappointed with the last series of Game of Thrones. So I'm sure that they've learnt from their failures there, and I'm pretty sure that this one will have an amazing ending. But that might not be for another eight to ten years. And I'm not doing a podcast on it every week, okay? So that's it from me. Hope you enjoyed this one. Oh, as always, please, if you like this one, give us a review. Click subscribe if you've just come here for the House of the Dragon. Got lots of other ones. As I said, watch out soon for the Ring of Powers episode. If you like fantasy, I've done Lord of the Rings. I talk about Warhammer, which is something that did influence Game of Thrones. And I do stuff on things like the Tudors as well and War of the Roses. So have a look at some of the earlier ones as well. And if you have clicked subscribe, thank you very much. But tell a friend. Tell one other person, real person, real human being in your life going, I'm enjoying this and I think you'll like it too. Would really appreciate it if you could do that. But as always, another podcast coming soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.